really enjoyed that song. Thank you, Chuck. That was fantastic. Um, I believe. I, man, I like that one. Um, can we sing that one more? Can I make a personal request? Thanks. Um, so um, there's a few things that, we, uh, that have come up uh, here in the, the last little while. Uh, and with the holiday weekend and things like that, we haven't been able to celebrate those things. And so we want to take a real short time here right at the beginning to celebrate a couple things. Number one, uh, if we can show that next picture, maybe. Bueller. Yes? And one more? There it is. We have collected and filled 251 Magi boxes this year. Give yourselves a round of applause. Um, and so thank you for, for stepping out, for doing that, for blessing children that you will probably never, ever meet, um, but you have moved and worked in miraculous ways uh, for these kids. And so we thank you for that. And we also want to praise God for that as well, because he is the one who has moved through us and worked through us and allowed us to do those things. The other thing that we want to praise God for is this next picture. This is a picture of Brody Nelson's last CT scan. Um, the picture there on the left is a picture of the tumor that was in his head. And then the picture on the right was on September the 30th. And as you can see, it is all but gone. Um, God does miracles. Um, so we, um, excuse me, we want to praise God today. So will you stand with me, please? And let's pray and let's thank him. Father, you continue to amaze us. You do things that we cannot ask, that we cannot imagine happening. Father, we know how dear children are to you, and we know how much you love and care for them, and we thank you for working in us and through us as we asked and as we prayed as we went out and bought things for Magi boxes, as we, as we looked to you to be the healer and the savior of a little boy. And so, Father, we just thank you. We just praise you that you are a miraculous God. We thank you that you love and care and you reach out and you save. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for doing that with me. So um, most of us, I would dare say um, almost all of us, we are a, a people that we kind of lead with our we lead with our heads, and I don't mean when I walk. Like when I walk, I do generally kind of lead with my head. But, but what I mean is we are people in general who we are more head than we are heart. And I think that that's mainly just a westernized culture thing. But I think that it's been kind of a slow transition that we've made. And as I started to think about that, I started to think baseball. <laughs> of course. Um, 
Did I mention that I'm preaching Gary's material today? Did I mention? <laughs> Maybe he thought baseball, so then I thought baseball. Um, no, but really, um, we see this, this progression that's happened specifically in baseball, but, but in a lot of different sports, where it's gone from a, from a feeling, from a gut reaction, from, from that to a very highly sophisticated mathematical probability. This was really shown and, and described in the, in the movie Moneyball. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie or not, but we have a video clip. I want you to watch it. It's going to kind of summarize the entire movie here in just a few minutes. But it's going to lead us down a path that we need to take today. So if you will.
when we, when we first see Christianity start, when they're the new kids on the block, we see a movement that starts as a movement of, of the heart. A lot like the old guys sitting around a, a, a war room table talking about the, the good body nonsense. Talking about, about how he swings the bat and how he looks and the intangibles and, and all these things. And they miss some other guys because they look funny or they're old. And so as we make this progression from, from being something from the heart and moving into something that, that's more heady, something that, that's more of a movement that... that that encompasses how we think. There's some good things there. We end up catching people that we would normally miss. We end up seeing people that we would normally overlook. But at the same time, we can end up in these fights that we don't want to be a part of. We can make an effort to try and convince people that we're right. We can make an effort to try and convince people that, that what we believe is different from what those people believe and what we believe is right and what they believe is wrong. And we might very well be right. We might very well be right. We get caught up in these battles with science and battles with with different groups and and what happens is we end up we end up losing the heart of people we go so much to the head we go so much to their heads and, and to the way that they think and, and, and the way that things are logical and, and how this makes sense that we lose the heart and rabbis in the time of Jesus they would have said something totally different. They, said, they would say, if you speak to the head, the heart may never follow. But if you speak to the heart, the head will always follow. You see, we have this, we have this, this competing dynamic. We have this, this head versus heart conflict that goes on. And what God is really looking for is not just for us to follow him and to understand him cognitively. What he's looking for is he is looking for us to follow him with our head and our heart. The word for this in Hebrew is on the next slide here, is, is nefesh. Can you say it with me? Nefesh, okay? Now, in, in the Hebrew Bible, this means several different things. One of the things that it means is throat. It can mean throat or thirst. As the deer thirsts for water, as the deer nefesh, as he nefeshes, I don't know what the plural form of that is. As he thirsts for water, so my soul, my nefesh, longs for you. Nefesh has a, a connotation of meaning the entire human body, the entire human being, that the whole of a person. You see, God doesn't want just one or the other. God doesn't want you to just logically know 
about him. He doesn't want you to just know the gospel. He wants you to experience it with your heart. So today, as we, as we talk about two, um, two parts of our faith journey, we want to talk about them from the context of our nefesh, of our entire being, of our heart and our soul as well as our minds. The two, two things that we're going to talk about today, we're going, to, we're, we're going to be talking about baptism and communion. And these two things are called, in, in the Latin Bible, they're called sacraments. And the interesting thing about the word sacrament is that it actually means sacred mystery. Isn't that interesting? The things that we participate in, in baptism and in communion, those are sacred mysteries. And in an effort to try and convince and explain our faith, how much of the sacred mystery have we, have we lost? Because we become so com- convinced, we become so, so concerned with the head that we leave the heart behind. And so today, as we focus on these sacred, minist- sacred mysteries, I keep wanting to say sacred ministries. I guess I, anyway. As we focus on these sacred mysteries, we have to put them within a larger context because we understand that the gospel always occurs within a larger context. And so when we talk about baptism, we need to understand this. We need to understand that water and salvation have always been connected. They are a part of the larger context that is the gospel. When we think back about stories in the New Testament, or not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, rather, when we think back about stories, we think about the story of Moses. Moses was saved through the water. When we talk about the, the group, the, the body of Israel, as they passed from Egypt into the wilderness, they went through the Red Sea, they passed through the water, and what happened after they passed through the water? They were saved from the armies of Egypt. We can go on and on. We can talk about Elisha and Naaman, and Naaman being dipped seven times. We can talk about, about all the different times, the, the crossing of the Jordan that All the stories that include people going through the waters to be saved. Water and salvation have always been intimately connected. There's something mysteriously sacred about that. So as we, as we think about baptism, we read verses like this verse in Ezekiel 36. It says this, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Romans chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians quotes the same scripture. 
We go to Romans chapter 6, and it says something interesting too. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sins. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Water and salvation have always been intimately connected. They've always been a part of the gospel. You see, the king, God, is not satisfied with us simply knowing that we are saved. He wants more than that. He wants us to experience our saving. And so we're connected to this this grand story of of salvation. And we're connected to this grand story of water being a part of our saving. And so we experience that through the sacrament of baptism. And the king does not simply want us to know. He wants us to experience. And so he expects for us to be baptized. He expects for us to enter water. He expects for us to to commit to him. He expects for us to die a symbolic death by being lowered into water. He expects for us to raise back to life by being raised out of the water to symbolize the resurrection. And he does this so that you and I, in this sacrament in this sacred ministry, the sacred mystery, can experience the gospel. God wants to enact the gospel through your salvation. God wants the gospel to be something that is not just something we read on paper, but he wants it to be something that we see and experience and do. And so because of that, when we are baptized, we enact the gospel personally. You see, the gospel is more than just a story. The gospel is more than just just good news. The gospel is something that we do. The dying and the raising back to life. The saving through water. And so as we go through this personal, this, this incredibly intimate sacrament of baptism, We enact the gospel on a personal level. 
But as you all know, as we sit here in this community, as we sit here in this group of people, this group of believers, we understand that God is not only interested in us personally. He's interested in us as a community. And so that's when we see how the Lord's Supper becomes the gospel as well. See, because community and the supper have always been connected, just like, just like water and salvation have always been connected. This is the context, this is the larger story of the gospel for the community. It starts way back in the book of Exodus. When God is saving his people from their persecution in Egypt, And he says, I am going to do something to free my people from their bondage of slavery. And he creates a meal for his people to be a part of. So that after this meal, after this meal, they can can be passed over. And so they take a a special meal, one that they had never done before. And and as a community, they experience this. There's a command that we probably gloss over real quickly in, in the book of Exodus. As God is giving the commands for what to do and what to eat and how to cook and how to be ready for the Passover to take place. He says something very interesting. He says, take a lamb and slaughter it. Keep the blood. And if the lamb is more than you, than your family can use, share with a neighbor. See, this was not just a lot of personal families inside their own homes doing something without anybody else around. This was a community of people coming together and waiting on their God to do something amazing. This was a community waiting on their salvation. And so from this Passover meal that continues to be celebrated even today after thousands and thousands of years, we've even celebrated that meal here. We see that community continually is a part of this Lord's Supper meal. Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, says something very interesting. We'll read it together. Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Did you see it? Did you see there that that there's an expectation of community in the Lord's Supper? 
There's an expectation of unity, of togetherness. There's an expectation of family meeting together and having a meal together. There's not, it is not acceptable. As we'll continue to see, for people to go on and participate in this supper without their brothers and sisters, without their community. It is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Do you despise the church of God? That's what our community is. When we participate in this sacrament, there's something miraculous that happens as we go from a group of individuals coming together. We go from just being a club to being the body of Christ, to being the church of God. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, he, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Examining ourselves I think for us, tends to be something in this sacrament that is, that is personal. As well it should be. We should be examining ourselves, examining our behavior, examining our past week, examining our future week, the, the times that, that we will be interacting with people in the future. How we will be showing them the body and the blood of Jesus through the way that we act and behave. How we will be showing them the gospel. And how we've done that in the past. But at the same time, there's an examining that must be done. That examines our role in the community of God's people. We examine ourselves to know if we are discerning the body of Christ. Are we being a part of the body of Christ? Are we fulfilling our call to community? That's why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Community is expected. Community and the supper have always been joined together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not, it may not result in judgment. We see how the supper and, and community are so, so intimately wrapped together. We see that this is the way that the community enacts the gospel of Christ. Just as we personally enact the gospel of Christ through baptism, as a community, we enact the body, or we enact the gospel of Christ through taking the body and the blood of Christ. The king is not content with you simply knowing you are a part of a community. He's not content with you coming here knowing that this is where you go to church and these are the people that you go to church with. The people in Corinth knew that. They knew that much. But that didn't stop. That's, that, wasn't, that wasn't something that, that kept them from doing things that harmed one another. That wasn't something that kept the rich from doing things that humiliated the poor. That didn't keep them from behaving in ways that did not proclaim the gospel of Christ as it should be proclaimed to one another and to people from the outside. See, God wants to enact the gospel through our community. As we do things like like making magi boxes. As we do things like praying for little boys who have brain tumors that don't go to our church. God wants our community to be a part of enacting the gospel outside of this place. And it starts with the, the remembrance that comes from taking the bread and from taking the cup. When we partake of the supper, we enact the gospel communally. When we partake of the bread and the blood, we are enacting what Christ has done for us. We remember his body hung and broken on a cross. We remember the blood pouring down to cover our sins. We remember all of these things and we examine ourselves, we examine our role in the community and we come together in one place at one time in one sacred mystery. 
where we proclaim what Christ has done by having a meal together. It seems like such a small thing. But it's no small thing. It's no small thing to proclaim the gospel of Christ through baptism or through the Lord's Supper. It's never a small thing to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. It's never a small thing to gospel the gospel. You see, the gospel is so much more as we've talked through this series, the gospel is so much more than just a one-time event. The gospel is so much more than just, just a proclamation. The gospel is so much more than just something that, that is for you personally and individually. The gospel is more than just something that is for us as a community. The gospel, the gospel is everything. The gospel is in everything, and the gospel is through everything. As we go through our lives, and we see the way that God takes the dead and the broken parts of our lives, and he reclaims those for him, that's the gospel as we see him ultimately do that in baptism, as we gain our entrance into his kingdom through baptism, we see the gospel being proclaimed. As we proclaim that we will one day sit at a table with Jesus Christ again, to eat a supper with him again. As we remember that he was once here, that he lived and that he then died and that he rose back to life, making a deposit, a down payment for you and I to do the same one day. We proclaim the gospel as we take the Lord's Supper here on Sunday morning. The gospel is present in the meal we take on Sunday and the washing we receive at baptism. You see, we, again, we want to make this movement like they have in sports from being a thing of the heart and the gut to being a thing that's solely of the mind. But we have to remember that God is not only concerned with your mind. God does not want to merely save you cognitively. He wants to save your whole being. And He wants to do that now. He wants you He wants you to know the gospel by experiencing the gospel.
So, as we end, I don't know if there's someone here who needs to experience the gospel. If there is, we would love, love, love to see you proclaim the gospel through baptism. We would love to see you witness to us the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We would love to be a part of that sacred mystery happening here this morning. So if we can help you do that, we would love to do that. We're going to have ministers and we're going to have our elders at the back of our auditorium during this next song. And if you would like to come forward to be baptized, that would be wonderful. We would love to partake in that with you. If you need prayer, you can go to the back and have prayer with our elders. The gospel is not simply something we know with our minds. It's something we know with our hearts. So as we stand and as we sing, let's proclaim that gospel again this morning. Lord.